Well, friends, we, we are almost to the end of this tethered series. Can you believe it? So this week and next week, we're going to camp out in Mark chapter 15 as we remember the death of Jesus. And, and the, next, the next thing that's going to happen is that one service on June 11th, we're going to conclude this sermon series in Mark 16. So Anthony's going to be back that week. You will not want to miss it. So what I want to encourage you to do for that service is maybe think about some ways that this tethered series, we've been doing it for a while, has impacted you. Is there anything that, you, that has really stuck with you that you remembered through this tethered series? And write that down. And, and if you'd be willing, we'd love to, to see that. So if you could share that to uh, an email of one of the staff, um, we, would, we would be so grateful for that. So um, be considering that, something that impacted you through Tethered. Okay, so for today, um, this is probably going to sound a bit like I'm overhyping the text. But the reality is, is that the events that we're going to take a look at in Mark chapter 15 and Mark chapter 16 these are cosmic events. What do I mean by that? These, these are world-changing events. And so this would not be an exaggeration to say that the events in Mark 15 and 16 are the single most significant events in history. So much has led up to this particular moment that we're going to take a look at from the beginning of creation. And then from that point until now, we've had so many ways that people have either affirmed or rejected the events that have happened in this text. But before we dive in, before we look at Mark chapter 15, I think it's appropriate today to acknowledge that this week of all weeks, when we're going to open Mark's biographical account of Jesus, not everyone listening to this is going to believe the words that are written. At this point in history, we have a small library of 66 books in the Old and New Testament that have been bound together in this collection that we call the Bible, but the Bible has lost credibility in the eyes of some. And so if you're a skeptic or if you doubt or if you wonder if any of the words are true in the scriptures, we are glad you're here. We think this is a great place for you to ask deep questions and so we're glad that you have joined us today. And some of you may be catching this online, or you may be catching this at a later date. And so we're glad that you're listening as well. And so today we're going to talk about the trial that happened of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And we're going to talk about the nature and reality of truth. And so now what, what is a trial? What happens at a trial? What's at stake when we have a trial? Well, ultimately, there's a, there's a judge, right, and there's a jury, and there's a defendant, and what they're attempting to do, really, at the heart of it, is to discern what is true. So a defendant is going to make a truth claim, and, and then a prosecutor is going to come in, right, and they're going to attack that claim and attempt to assert their own truth. So the truth is on trial, right? So what is truth? A simple definition of truth is truth is without deceit. Truth is the absence of deceit. And so something that is true is not deceptive. It's factual. And some would say that, that truth is the basis of reality. So a good trial is going to bring out what is true. And so all of us 
we tend to put things on trial. And so we have these different tests that we use in our minds that we use to determine the things that are true and the things that are false. And some of these tests that we use, we have inherited from people who raised us. Some of them we have inherited from our culture. Uh, Dr. Robin Hardaway, he's a professor at MBTS, he, he talks about how we inherit things in our culture, sometimes without even realizing that we're doing it. And, and so in the Western world, that is uh, North and South America and Europe and Australia, we tend to emphasize the visual. That's what Dr. Hardaway says. We emphasize the, vis- the visual. So we use, we use phrases like, let's see about that. Let's look into this. Let's examine the issue. We, we want to use our eyes because the basis of truth in our Western culture is if our eyes can see it, then it must be true. And so we trust our eyes to deliver an experience of truth that makes sense to our minds. And we also, we subconsciously, we base our truth on other things, maybe other senses or other contexts. And so to give you an example, if I give you the statement cooperation is good, you think that is true based on what? You can't really see cooperation with your eyes. You can see the effects of it, but you likely have experienced a time when you have cooperated with someone else or people have cooperated with you. You saw that it was good. So your trust is not necessarily based on your eyes. It is based on this experience. Your experience has determined what the truth is. And so in today, in today's text, we're going to decide if the trial of Jesus was good. We're going to decide who is interested in truth. And so one of the big ideas that I, that I want us to focus on today is what are the things that I put on trial? What types of things do I attempt to discover that are true? And how do I, de- how do I go about determining whether or not they are true? And so if I had to guess, I would say that a lot of you, or maybe, maybe some of you, are like me, and that we put Jesus on trial. Now, we probably don't frame it like that. We don't use those words and say, I'm putting Jesus on trial. We wouldn't say that out loud, but there are times when we wonder if he is real. We put his existence on trial. There are times when we wonder if any of the stuff in the Bible is real. We put the truth of God's word on trial. We wonder at times if Jesus is who he says he is. And so we put the deity of Christ on trial. And so we put Jesus on trial consciously and subconsciously, and then we come to conclusions based on what we already know is true. So let's tackle one of those trials right now. And we're going to focus on the historicity of the central figure in this library of texts called the Bible. And we know his name now today as Jesus. But let's start with one of those. Let's start out with this first question, which is, did Jesus actually exist? It's an important question and one that um, almost everyone has to wrestle with if they have heard of Jesus. Now, Christians may point to the four biographies of Jesus to, uh, as evidence for his existence, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or they may port, point to some kind of uh, personal experience that they have had with the risen Jesus as ev- evidence for his existence. But maybe you're skeptical, and, and maybe you think that personal experience is a little subjective, or you're having your doubts, or you're wondering about 
whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John might have been a little bit biased when they wrote the accounts of the life of Jesus. So you might ask, what other evidence do we have? What other things out there can prove the existence of Jesus? Now, the, the job of a good historian is to gather all of the evidence, all of the existing data that we have on any specific person or event, right? And then investigate those claims across every source of data. And so how would we typically investigate whether or not a person existed in the past? For instance, what evidence do we have of the historicity of the person of Abraham Lincoln, former president of the United States? How do we know that he actually existed? Now go with me on this. No one alive today was alive when Abraham Lincoln was alive. So we have to rule personal experience out, right? Video evidence is non-existent at that time. But you say, well, we have a few, we have a few photographs, right? And so if there's a photograph of Abraham Lincoln, we assume that the man really existed based on the way our Western culture prioritizes the visual. So if we can see it, it must be true. So what does that say about our concept of truth and the reality of existence? Something is only true if we have photographic evidence of the occurrence. And so photography then is the prized method that we use to discern truth in the last couple hundred years. But what about someone like Billy the Kid? Was he a legend or was he real? There's only one known photograph of him and maybe this is a fake. Does he exist without photographic evidence? What if we move even further back in time? So the world's first photograph was taken in 1826 and this is it here. Uh, it's not much to look at. But what if we go even further back from 1826? What about Galileo? He was born in the 1500s. How do we know he existed? What about Plato? What about Socrates? What about Julius Caesar? We don't have any photos of them. And you say, well, we, you know, we have portraits that people painted and we have sculptures or busts that artists created, but those could just be artists' interpretations, right? How do we know that these men weren't fabrications? How do we know that their followers didn't just invent these elaborate stories to sort of build up a following and a mass uh, followers uh, that are dedicated to their greatness. If photography is our modern Western methodology of determining reality, is it possible to prove that anyone existed prior to 1826? That's just a couple hundred years ago. And it's a small blip in the history of humanity. So what if, what if previous generations valued something other than photography as their method of reality and proof of existence? What can we take from what has been done in the past? So earlier time periods, they would use different methods to determine their truth because they had to. Obviously, photography didn't exist. So writing, pictographs were often utilized to record information about events, about people, about their likeness. And so writing is a visual medium, right? We can see the words. And so as a Western society, we can still find truth in words, right? So in order to determine whether a person exists, we should start about what was written about them, especially if they lived prior to 1826. And so we're, gonna, we're also going to look at archaeological data, sociopolitical and geographic data, artwork, poetry, and then we'll, we'll conclude by compiling an entire set of historical data to determine the reality of existence 
for a specific person. Is this person actually a, historic, a historical figure or are they a fabrication? And so effectively what we're doing is putting this person on trial. So this trial should include accounts from their closest friends, relatives, confidants, followers. And so for instance, let's say we're investigating the existence of the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. So Plato is not his real name. It's a pen name that he used when he was writing. And we actually don't know a lot about his, his uh, actual life, his real life, other than the words, words that he wrote. But what if we said, you know what? Don't use any of the earliest biographies of him. Don't use any of the first accounts that were written by the people who were close to him. Those accounts, they're, they're probably biased and they loved him. And so they loved his words enough to start this whole movement behind him. There's entire schools of thoughts that are based around the writings of Plato. So he amassed this historical following. So we can't really take those early accounts of him as, as proof that he exists. So prove that Plato exists without using these early sources that were written and produced by his closest friends. And if we did that with Plato, that would be ridiculous, right? No one would say that. But essentially, that's what some have tried to do with Jesus. Hey, prove the existence of Jesus without using Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Really, you, you want to discount the earliest and the closest sources to him? Why? Because they're biased? Because Jesus started a following that still exists today? Because they have theological significance? There was actually a time when theology was a highly prized source of knowledge. Some of the best and brightest scholars in history have referenced theological works, scientists, educators, philosophers, rulers. And so as a side note, Historically, we actually have more evidence for the existence of Jesus than we do that of Plato. But few people question if Plato exists, even though we know little about him. Why is that? Here recently, scholars and journalists and writers and investigators have, have taken this task upon themselves. Let's prove that Jesus exists without using Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so there's a book right now that's called Cold Case Christianity, and it's from an author, J. Warner Wallace, and he uses his skills as a cold case homicide detective to examine the evidence that surrounds the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so you can check out his book for more. There's a cover of, of his book. And so Wallace, he includes several sources that are outside of the biographies of Jesus. And there are a lot. And so I've got an image here of several of these sources. He calls them hostile sources. And that is, they're not Christians. And, and these guys have some awesome names, right? Like Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Celsus. Any of you naming your kids Celsus out there? That'd be a good one. So these people are not biased towards Jesus. In fact, many of them were opposed to Jesus. Josephus, he was a Jewish writer. He was one of the most prolific writers in this period. He's commissioned to write a history of the accounts of first century Judaism. And so he wrote this, quote, Now around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of people who gladly accepted the truth. He won over both many Jews and Greeks. Pilate, when he heard him accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross. But those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. 
To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. And he almost sounds a little disappointed by that. And then there's a man named Tacitus. He's a senator under Emperor Vespasian. He was a proconsul in Asia. He's considered one of the greatest Roman historians. And so in one of his written works, he's describing these events that happened under Emperor Nero and Emperor Nero's response to the great fire in Rome. And so Nero blamed Christians. And this is what Tacitus says, quote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ Jesus, from whom the name had his origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So we've got an early Jewish historian, we've got an early Roman historian, they are examining the evidence and confirming the existence of Jesus, the trial before Pilate, and the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the subsequent rise of Christianity. There's an earlier writer, this is the last one, his name is Thallus. He attempted to explain the darkness. So in some of the the accounts, there is a darkness, there's an earthquake that happens around the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is what Thallus says, quote, On the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. And again, these are all sources that are outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of these men were Christian. None of them had any desire to see Christianity become what it became. And how many of you have heard of the name of Thallus? I would guess very few. How about the name of Jesus? That's interesting. Do we think it's more credible to believe in the existence of Thallus instead of the existence of Jesus? And if so, we need to ask ourselves why we think that. Why do we think that? What is that based on? We actually have more evidence that Jesus existed than Thallus. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we discounting historical evidence when we say that Jesus didn't exist? And if so, we need to ask ourselves why. So, so why do we go through all of that? Why, why, why talk about all of that up front? Especially if you're a believer, you might not care about some of that historical data. But it's still good to know that today we are looking at a real historical person in Jesus. We are looking at an actual trial that happened, an actual crucifixion that is to take place. And so Jesus is still being put on trial today in certain minds, and in the court of public opinion. So before we even start talking about what the scriptures say about Jesus, we need to make sure that we're starting from the same place, that, that there is a, a evidence that Jesus existed. And if he existed, if, his, if the evidence for his existence is at least plausible, if his life, death, and resurrection are plausible, then we at the very least need to pay attention So now that we've established some credibility into the life and death accounts of Jesus from various sources, we're going to look at one of the earliest sources that we have. The Gospel of Mark, the biography of Mark, was one of the earliest works written. And we're going to look at chapter 15. Now this is part one of the death of Jesus. Next week we're going to look at part two. 
And so the death of Jesus is recorded in all four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And like any good historical accounts, each one of them lists something different. They all record something unique about the death of Jesus. So I'd encourage you to read all of them to get a full account of what happened. So follow along with me as I read in Mark 15, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a, held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and they began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. That's interesting. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. So in this chapter, we are nearing the culmination of God's grand plan, his great master plan for salvation and the redemption of all humanity. So what started all of this? Why does humanity need to be redeemed? Well, clear back in Genesis, Adam and Eve were the first humans ever created, and they were given a choice by God to obey or disobey. They, they literally could have eaten from any of the beautiful trees in the Garden of Eden, but they're told that one, one tree, just one, is off limits. This is what God said in Genesis 2. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so in the next chapter, their basis of truth is put on trial. There is a prosecutor. He is an accuser. He comes in the form of a serpent. He comes to them and he says, hey, did God actually say this? He's questioning their truth. And by the end of the trial, Adam and Eve, they had condemned themselves by giving in to this accuser's version of reality. They disobeyed God's only order. Now, this is amazing to me. They didn't have 613 laws at this point. They just had one. They only had one order to obey and they failed. And so there is a consequence. Whenever we sin, there is consequence. And so death was the consequence here. Death of access to the garden, death of direct access to God, death of perfection, ultimate blessing. There's so many areas of, of death that we can't get into today. But he ushered in several consequences. And one of those is for the serpent. And so we're going to take a look at Genesis 3.15. This is what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And so we're going to look at that a little more in depth next week. But for this week, Adam and Eve are put on trial. 
They're given a choice between listening to God and listening to this accuser. They're given a choice between obeying and worshiping God or obeying this accuser in order to effectively worship themselves. But secretly, they'll be worshiping the accuser. They don't realize it at the time. So in this trial, Pilate is faced with his own choice. And the religious leaders are faced with a choice. Jesus has his choice. And so the accuser, who is also known as Satan, has made his own plans. God has his grand plan of salvation. Satan has his plan. And so once again, we have a trial between humanity, represented by Jesus, and the accuser, represented by the religious leaders and Pilate. And so the offspring of the woman here is Jesus. He's a descendant of David, of Judah, of Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, all the way back to Adam. And the evil, lying, accusing serpent is accusing Jesus through these religious leaders and tempting Pilate. And you might say, well, when I read the text, it just looks like it's Pilate and these religious leaders against Jesus here. And and that's true. But the accuser, don't miss this, the accuser has been making plans of his own, and he is working through these people in opposition to Jesus. So if you remember, several weeks ago, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, And so Satan left him until an opportune time. Well, this is the opportune time. Now he has Jesus right where he wants him. He thinks he is going to be victorious against the plans of God by ending the life of the Son of God. And so this miraculous ministry that Jesus has had on earth, Satan has had enough of it, and he is going to cut it off right here, right now. And so I don't don't miss that this is actually a massive cosmic battle between God and Satan. Paul in Ephesians 6.12 says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in, this he- in the heavenly places. Guys, this is a big deal. What is happening right now? Don't miss this. Yes, the religious leaders are people, but they have certainly been influenced by evil. How do we know they've been influenced by evil? Well, they they are doing things that a person under good influences would not normally do, especially a religious leader. For example, we're going to take a look at Luke's biographical account of this event. And so in Luke 23.2, this will be on the screen. Then the whole company of them, that is the religious leaders, they arose and they brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So in order to kill Jesus, these religious leaders straight up lied which is a forbidden and a punishable offense in Jewish law. Those who bear false witness in Deuteronomy 19 will be punished with the punishment that they are seeking for the one they falsely accuse. So in this case, bearing false witness against a person on trial for treason would result in the liar getting punished for treason, according to Deuteronomy 19, according to Jewish law. So Jesus, if you remember, he is directly asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus answered, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. The religious leaders are given a choice here of speaking truth versus killing Jesus. And they, like Adam and Eve, they fail their trial. They choose, instead of truth, they choose to lie. 
And instead of obedience to God, they choose disobedience. And so today, we're going to look at three things. What is our basis for truth? How do we determine what is true in our lives? What is the test that we use in our minds? So based on this passage, there are three tests, three ways that truth is put on trial. And we're going to see how this applies to our basis of truth in our lives. So number one, first, the religious leaders. What is their basis for truth? They thought that the end justified the means. They lied, they falsely accused Jesus of doing things he didn't do in order to get him killed. They thought it was more important to get him killed than telling the truth. So their truth is based on justification. So number one, if you can justify it, it must be true. What about Pilate? What choice did he have? Pilate had the choice between administering justice based on truth and administering justice based on falsehoods. He has the choice between releasing an innocent man versus condemning one. And so he too fails in this trial because he chooses to release the guilty man Barabbas instead of the innocent man Jesus. Why? Well, his motives are a little bit more complicated and they're political, so that makes sense. He wants to avoid a riot from the people. He wants to please his superiors and appease the Jewish leaders. He wants people to think he's doing a good job governing this area. And so his truth is based on minority rules. Number two, if the majority favors it, it must be true. So ironically, Pilate doesn't have much of a clue about his own concept of truth or reality. Listen to Pilate's truth claim in John's biography of Jesus. This is John 18. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate has no anchor for truth. He is a chronic people pleaser. And if any of you have struggled with people pleasing, like I have, you can attest to just how difficult it is to be truthful when you want everyone to like you. And you think, if everyone thinks I'm doing okay, I must be doing okay. The concept of truth and reality is based on majority rules. And so then there's Jesus. Last week, Anthony walked us through the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus wrestled and he prays with sweat, uh, drops of blood because he knows what's coming. And so in the Garden, Jesus is, prevented, uh, is presented with his own choice. He either can obey God and go through with God's master plan of salvation, or he can disobey and run away. And man, we could have a very different story right now if Jesus decided to run away, right? None of us would be here. We wouldn't be talking about this. There would be a very different history from that moment in time. And so Jesus even asks God at that moment, if anything else could happen, God, if there is another way that your plan of salvation could unfold, can we make that way happen? Is there any other way we can do this? But unlike Adam and Eve, he obeys and he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so just like Adam and Eve, Jesus is given an opportunity to obey God and follow his command or disobey God and follow himself or follow the accuser. And Jesus actually passes his test. So his trial goes better than Adam and Eve because Jesus' truth is based on God's word. And this is number three. If God says it, it must be true. 
And so what about you? Do you follow self-justification? If you can justify it, it must be true. Or the majority? If, if the majority favors it, it must be true. Or God's word? If God says it, it must be true. Is there a cost to doing any of these versions of truth, basing any of these things in your own reality? Well, first, there's a high cost to self-justification. You'll likely get what you want, perhaps even often, but you're eventually going to end up hating yourself for having to justify your own selfish desires. Second, there's a high cost of following the majority. You're going to struggle to know who you are. You're going to struggle to know what is good, and you're going to feel directionless unless you receive affirmation from others, from the majority. And so finally, now you might think that I'm going to say there's not a cost to following God's word, but there is. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow him. Following the words of God means dying to our selfish desires. Following the words of God means dying to the praises of people. Following the words of God means that you might be led into uncomfortable situations. You might be led to the Dominican Republic. You might be led outside of your comfort zone where you have to trust God more than you trust yourself, and that's a high cost. But only following the word of God can anchor your life in any reality of truth. Otherwise, you're going to be tossed around constantly like Pilate. You're going to be self-loathing like the religious leaders. And so each basis for truth has a cost. And if, if I was making up a religion, I would probably say, hey, there's not a single cost to you to join this thing. You'll never suffer it again a day in your life. You can get a free car and a free house. Sign up today. But Christianity embraces a reality of suffering. And it actually explains why suffering exists, and that's a story for another time. But the late, great Tim Keller once said, Christianity is realistic. It's not selling you anything. So when Jesus told people to take up their cross and follow him, that's not a statement you would make if you are trying to appease the majority, because how many of us want to do that? It's a statement you would make if you wanted to be truthful. It's not a statement you would make if you wanted to self-justify. If you want to follow Christ, you're going to have to take up your cross. You have to deny your selfish impulses. You have to deny your desires to please people and follow Christ when it doesn't feel good. And so Jesus, man... He does everything right when he is here on earth. He was perfect. He never sins. He did more good for humanity than anyone ever could. And where is he right now in Mark chapter 15? What does he get for all of his good? He's on trial for treason. He's falsely accused of crimes he doesn't commit. And spoiler alert, he gets condemned to death. But Jesus kind of seems like this, this calm little presence in the middle of this massive storm in this story, doesn't he? I mean, if I was on trial, if I was in Jesus' shoes, and, and I struggle with people-pleasing, so I would probably try to convince Pilate that I'm a good guy and I'm no threat to Rome. I might try to convince the religious leaders that we're on the same team. We're, we're all on Team Yahweh, right? 
and, and I also struggle with self-justification, so I might lash out and really give these religious leaders what they deserve. I'd call them out on their, their hypocrisy, on their arrogance, on their stupidity. I'd call them horrendous liars. I'd tell Pilate, dude, get it together and pursue truth. Don't kill an innocent man just because you're trying to please some people. Or you know what? You know what I, I would be really tempted to do if I was Jesus in this situation? I, I'm the second person of the Trinity, right? I was there when the foundation of the earth was created. I have the power of God just waiting to burst out of me. I might just call flames down on that place and burn it all up. Or, or I'd call angels in to destroy all of my enemies in that place. I'm not just going to sit there and take it. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He knows it's God's plan. His truth is not based on self-justification or on majority opinion. He faces this knowing he's obeying God. He succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. And so Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he prophesies about this Messiah coming hundreds of years before this event happened. Uh, he wrote the book of Isaiah around 700 uh, BC. And so listen to these words that he wrote well before Jesus came to earth as a human. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers was silent. He did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He's taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, from the transgressions of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. What is truth? Truth is the absence of deceit. Now, I'm not sure what your truth paradigm is doing with that passage, but those words, they perfectly encapsulate what is happening to Jesus right now in Mark 15. Notice that Isaiah's prophecy declares this future Messiah would be oppressed and afflicted, and yet he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He wouldn't open his mouth to defend himself. Jesus barely speaks a word to the religious leaders in Mark 14, and then in Mark 15, Jesus only says a few things to Pilate, and Pilate is absolutely amazed. He is shocked by this. Pilate is used to people coming before him and groveling, begging for their lives, saying anything they can to get out of the possibility of crucifixion. But Jesus doesn't do that. So this week and next week, we're going to look at the type of pain, the types of pain that Jesus deals with. And so right now, Jesus is dealing with a tremendous amount of pain in the form of isolation. And, and it struck me this week that Jesus was totally abandoned during this whole thing. He's, he's separated and cut off from his family. 
and his friends had all disappeared. The man that he had invested so much time in, he called the rock, and he was going to build his church on him. That man, Peter, denied him three times. How lonely must it have been for him to face this miserable circumstance without a single person in his corner? Where are the, are the, the witnesses to his defense? No one comes to his defense. Isaiah says, who of his generation protested? Where are the rest of his followers in the crowd? Where are the people who came out to hear him preach and gladly lined up in droves so that he could heal them? He uh, miraculously fed thousands of people. Where are they? Where are the people who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord at Palm Sunday just a few days before this? As Isaiah says, he is despised and rejected. So at Jesus' lowest moment, no one comes. And I think what really strikes me is that I have put Jesus on trial and that I have rejected him. I have despised him. I have abandoned him. And if I lived in this time period, I can't say that I would be right there next to him. A little over 20 years ago, I put Jesus on trial. I accused him of withholding freedom from me. And I wanted to pursue freedom as far as freedom could be pursued. And I thought Jesus was holding it back. Because after all, Jesus is all about rules and regulations and and punishments, right? And so just like Adam and Eve, I made up my own truth and I got things twisted. I listened to the accuser and believed false things about Jesus. I thought Jesus just existed to make me feel guilty when I messed up. Kind of like he's a, he's a cosmic police officer in the sky just waiting to give me a ticket when I made wrong choices. Or maybe if I made really bad choices, he would throw me in jail. And so I, I just wanted to justify my own, my own desires and, and to appease people around me. I wanted to live the lifestyle that I saw other people live, my non-Christian friends. And so in order to self-justify my actions, I had to put Jesus on trial. And I condemned him for withholding freedom so that I could feel morally justified in making decisions that Jesus might think are wrong. And then when I felt a little guilty for my actions, I could look around the room and think, these people are doing it. They seem to be okay. Maybe I'm okay. Later, I returned to Christ. And he had every right to put me on trial and accuse me of abandoning him, of abusing alcohol, of hurting people around me. But he didn't put me on trial. Do you know who did? Do you know who still is putting me on trial constantly? The accuser. That evil one, Satan, he is still accusing me, still attacking me, still desperately trying to get me to believe lies. And guess who comes to my defense? Jesus. The one who I put on trial and abandoned over 20 years ago, Jesus steps in and he tells me, you know what, you don't even need to respond to that accuser. Just tell him to go away in Jesus' name. He tells me that my, he tells me that he substituted himself for my, for my, for my sins. He put himself in my place. The jury, no doubt, is going to find me guilty of sin. But Jesus took on the full punishment that I deserved for my actions. So hear me on this. What we use to define our truth is crucial. 
you likely have put Jesus on trial maybe more than once. And you've tried to determine if he's real, if he is who he says he is, if he's good. And you may self-justify or try to find moral excuses for wrongdoing, or you might look to the, to the majority and think, if, the, if they're doing it, it's okay for me. And, and here's the thing. God can handle it when we put him on trial. In fact, a lot of the Psalms are, are basically people wrestling with God and asking him where he is and what he's doing with all the evil around us. So God can handle it. We can go to God with our frustrations, but God is going to do something. He's going to call you to something more. He's not going to force anything on you. If Jesus' trial tells us anything about his nature, it's that he's not forceful. I would have been forceful in his situation, but Jesus asks. He asks us to follow him. He asks us to obey him. He asks us to take up our cross. And we have to decide what is true in that moment. Are your feelings true? Are your desires true? Are the perceptions you have about God true? What is true? This is true. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's time. It's time to make a decision. We have a choice in front of us. This trial was a historical event. Jesus' life is a historical life. The crucifixion we're going to look at next week has been historically verified. There is good evidence to base our reality of truth on these four biographies of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we get to decide what are we going to do with Jesus? Are you comforted or terrified by the reality of truth that you adhere to? What do you base your truth on? And so this week we're going to leave with a bit of a cliffhanger, but we're going to pick it up next week to see what happens. So come back for part two, crucifixion, next week. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for being in our corner, for standing up next to us when no one else will at times, for demonstrating that you love us enough that even though you experienced extreme pain and isolation, you never wanted us to. You built us for community. You built us with the capacity to be loved and to love. Help us to base our truth on the reality of you, that you are the truth. And when you speak, your words are true. There's no deceit in you. Help us to remember that we can rely on that when everything else around us feels really temporary, really wishy-washy, really unstable. God, stabilize our thoughts, our hearts, our minds. Help us to love you in a way that you deserve. We know that we don't deserve what you did for us, but we're so glad that you thought that we were worth dying for that you went through this misery on our behalf. So we give you thanks and praise this morning. And it's in your holy name that we pray.